everyone, and welcome to the last of our five special episodes discussing emerging insights at the midway point of the Resilient Leadership Project. On this episode, Peter Willis and Seth Schultz, that's me, will discuss insights related to the theme, Recovering Better. These insights are from our participants' weekly reflections on the impacts of COVID-19 on the future of cities and businesses. Hi, Peter. I think we're getting ready for our last mini episode today of the midterm reflections. We are indeed. Good morning, Seth. Although it's mid-afternoon for me here in Cape Town, for you, it's quite early in the morning. It is, and and I do have a very enthusiastic uh, rooster friend today. So I think I think he knows. I think he knows we're on to some interesting insights today, Peter. Good. So what we're doing in this fifth episode, Seth, is having a look at some of the insights that have emerged in the first half of our projects, interviews with our participants, where they talk about a focus on how we're going to come out of this pandemic and ideally how we're going to come out stronger and better through it and because of it. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, how some of our chief resilience officers are in a way, kind of rubbing their hands with glee and saying, okay, now this is giving us the opportunity to really bring in some resilience thinking into how our cities are organized and operate in future and so on. Then there's the perspective of Steve from the World Bank around how the climate change dynamics um, at the global political level are going to be affected by this or could be affected by this. And then I want to end with the way the virus has exposed and revealed layers of poverty and inequality and how that may be presenting opportunities which wouldn't otherwise be there to fix some of those problems. Sounds like a great lineup and all resonates strongly with our perspective at Resilient Shift. You mean a large part of what we do is try to raise the awareness around the critical importance of infrastructure? Um, particularly infrastructure that we increasingly, you know, don't prioritize or understand. So I, I totally commiserate slash um, identify with the CROs who are kind of rubbing their hands together. I mean, COVID is, has been a phenomenal platform to highlight some of that. I was on a call with um, some folks later last week, and uh, somebody had this really interesting comment that COVID has been like the mother of all public announcements on science. And it was such an interesting statement. And because, you know, particularly we've had so much struggles recently with fact-based, evidence-based, policymaking, decision-making, this kind of anti-truth, negative echo chamber of social media about which truth do you, do you subscribe to? And it's interesting that COVID has laid all of this bare and, and some of the underlying issues around equality and some of the other things you just mentioned. So I'm fascinated to hear what's been emerging over the last eight weeks from your perspective. Well, let's dive into it. A couple of stories about the the opportunity for resilient planning and operating in cities. Uh, an interesting conversation with Mahesh in Pune in India, who's was pointing out that the city has, like so many cities have, a big central station and a big central fruit and vegetable market. And they've operated like that for as long as anybody can remember. But when the pandemic required them to declare the central zones as uh, hotspots because they had quite a major outbreak there and locked them down more severely than the rest of the city. They realized, or he and some of the people he was talking to in the city realized that 
actually just having one of each of these is not a good idea. You, so maybe in future, he was saying, they would start to disperse their fruit and vegetable markets and maybe have sort of trains terminating, not all of them terminating in the central station, but starting to spread the load. Which when you think about it, because a city is a, they look terribly robust when they're working well, but the moment there's a sort of fundamental shaking of the foundations, which we've had now, you realize that you don't want to just have one of everything in a city. So dispersing your vital functions makes sense. So I thought that was a a very simple example of that principle. Yeah, indeed. Interesting, the the analogous to is happening uh, in the energy sector, where it's becoming increasingly obvious that in order to have a more resilient energy system, it needs to be more decentralized. And traditionally, power stations and distribution has been very hub and spoke model, very centralized. And much could be said the same of most transportation systems in cities around the world is the example that you just gave, where you've got multiple regional train lines coming into um, a grand central station and then interconnecting buses and other services between those lines. But we're seeing the same thing now in the kind of the disruption around micromobility, bus rapid transit, transportation systems that can more rapidly address to the changing needs of the city environment to provide solutions for transportation needs for citizens. So uh, it's quite interesting to hear the, the analogy around food uh, and COVID coming out of India. Definitely makes a lot of sense to me. And then on a, what to my mind was a slightly lighter note, Piero Pellizzaro in Milan, the chief resilience officer there, he and his team had been thinking about how to open up the city after lockdown in a way that would, first of all, give people more chance to socially distance but also would address some of the problems that he and his team have been worrying about for quite a while. So one of the ideas they came up with, which is not novel because one or two other cities are are doing this, is to put in a lot of bike lanes and also block off a whole set of streets, parts of main streets, one per little sub-district, so that each sub-district would have one arterial shopping street that would have a few hundred meters of it blocked off so that it was pedestrianized. But he also said, we're going to try and make those blocked off areas coincide with areas where there are quite a few electric vehicle charging points. Because, and he happens to be a a guy who in his spare time, I think, um, DJs or he organizes sort of um, the audio sound for performances and so on. He said, because then we can plug in speakers to those charging points. And I know we can do that. And then you can have little concerts and so on, because they've been thinking, how do we get the culture of the city to revive in a way that doesn't bring large crowds, but in a, in a pedestrianized street, you can have a small or medium-sized crowd listening to music or performance. It is really nice. And it's so interesting to see the type of thinking emerge, particularly, you know, from a citizen's perspective of wanting to congregate again. And the, the most immediate way, at least in an urban environment to do that is at the street level. Um, and there's been a, a growing movement of thinking about how we repurpose and redesign our cities and plan for our cities at the human scale. Whereas historically for the last hundred years or so, we've been planning it for the car, the automobile scale, and trying to take that back and put cities perspective, citizens perspective rather, uh, forward. And it's heartening to see again, this stemming social need to reconnect that that's happening 
at the block and lot level, as they say, you know, it's my street, it's my neighborhood. Let's think about repurposing this. And I've also seen a bunch of other work beginning to emerge from organizations like the C40 Cities Climate Leadership, which is a network of under the world's largest cities, uh, many of which have chief resilience officers, and this um, emerging focus around air quality and, and safety and non-motorized transportation at the heart of recovery. Really fascinating to see some of this emerge. And it was Piero, in fact, who was the one who first alerted me to this sense, which I've noticed now uh, in other countries where I've been talking to uh, some of our participants, this sense that when you've locked down a population for two months or more, when they come out, they actually don't want to go shooting all over the place and return to their normal dispersed lives. They actually have expressed quite strongly in a questionnaire they did for the people of Milan, they've expressed quite strongly a wish to be able to get stuff they need as locally as possible. They don't want to go far away. So I think this is going to be a real shot in the arm for that movement you're just describing now of sort of centripetal rather than centrifugal force in cities. Keep local where you, ha- where you can, only go further when you have to. That's my, my little sort of dip into the world of chief resilience officers as things are starting to move into the recovery phase. And then I said I wanted to, to reference uh, Steve Hammer in, in the World Bank, who's been working furiously to support his colleagues who are having these critical conversations around stimulus packages and recovery plans with national governments around the world. And he obviously being, his, his, his role is climate policy advisory and his wish, and I know from what I read, and I'm sure you will too, that everybody who's got a, who carries a candle for the climate change, for climate change action, is hoping that as we come out of the COVID disaster, we're going to build on what we've gained in terms of lower fuel use and cleaner skies and so on. But I have to say that listening to him week after week, it's very delicately balanced because there may be the will, and certainly the EU countries, I get the impression, are very solidly behind investing in a green recovery. But for many other governments that the bank is in discussions with, uh, what he's noticing is that they are saying, you know, prove to me that an investment in green technologies, and that's not all high-tech stuff, that can be planting of forests and so on, prove to me that that's actually going to be a better investment than, than doing what we all know best in this part of the world, which obviously is older-style investments and infrastructure. and they're doing this at a time when their their treasuries are running out of money. So the idea of borrowing more money in order to do something that is for them novel is just an extra layer of risk. So we have to wait and see. We I think we'll find out during the next month or two whether to what extent some of these governments are going to bite the bait of okay we'll take a loan and we but we will spend some of it on carbon reduction investments. We do a lot of work the resilient shift around intergovernmental diplomacy and a lot with the United Nations, the, the UNFCCC, UN Habitat, et cetera. And it is fascinating to, to see the complexity with surrounding this crisis and, and what's happening because of the international nature of coordinating, collaborating kind of in the UN style with 195 plus countries around the world. 
you don't have a lot of time to set up the right moments of opportunity. They're far and few between. And as a result, you know, you end up having these, these years where there's 10 years of work to approach and to then dive deep into a topic. So as an, as an example, this year, I don't know if many people know it, but this year is the year of biodiversity. And there's been a 10-year program around the world focusing on the collapse of biodiversity. There's a kind of a mass extinction going on is, is the verbiage used around habitat and species loss linked to you know, sustainability, climate change, natural resource extraction, et cetera. And then you know, COVID comes along and all of a sudden, what's been a decade of work building up for awareness around biodiversity now just gets knocked flat. And you have this with the economy, with equality, with climate change, with biodiversity. So it is a really tricky thing when you're talking intergovernmental politics on which are the right threads of these to pull. And of course, those, those in the space who are steeped in this understand that they're all interconnected, but that's a comp- it's complicated stuff. And it's hard to get attention and movement and focus political attention and funding on any one of these, let alone say we have to deal with them all at the same time. But I think for the CROs and others in the resilient space, that's exactly what it's about. It's about understanding interconnected nature. And I, I can see that there's a lot of hopefulness and focus on trying to use what's happening now as an example of how we need to think differently and acknowledge that there's more important processes that need to be put in place to yield the outcomes that we need. This is not easy stuff. And then particularly, again, with the national governments primarily focusing on financial recovery and equality, that's a harder and harder, harder argument to make in some, in some circles. What I pick up from both the CROs and from Steve is that uh, leadership really matters here. Because if you've got a mayor who buys this vision of we're going to have to do things differently, so why don't we start now while we've got this hiatus, then they want the resilience chief resilience officer in their office regularly saying, so what does this look like? How do we do this differently? Similarly, national governments, harder to find the leadership in national governments and what about the private sector here, Peter? Because it, it strikes me kind of the comments you're making about cities and CROs and intergovernmental processes and some of the things that Steve is focusing on. But businesses have a huge role here, particularly as countries, governments are going to literally start printing money and dropping interest rates to stimulate the economy. Private sector investment is going to be paramount. So where are they in all of this? And it's interesting, just before I turn to you, I'm also hearing really interesting conversations with companies. And it's, you know, equally uncertain for them and, and financially very damaging, but also similarly to this, like, little bit of inside opportunity and hopefulness from the CROs, businesses are feeling the same way. But businesses regularly shed staff, need to evolve. And many companies around the world have been waiting for the moment where there would be a step change, either via carbon, a global carbon tax uh, or cap and trade system when the shift full on to renewables would be and at what point they need to then pivot their company on doing this. And many of them are seeing COVID as that opportunity, but are getting uncertain and mixed signals from national governments about the consistency with which this is going to be taken moving forward and and leaving them kind of in the lurch, feeling like this is the time to evolve and to change and make some hard decisions, but we're still not getting a clear signal. What are you hearing from our private sector participants? Not something that I've talked with them much about, actually, particularly around the sort of green recovery, as it's called. But it's that's a good question I must ask. 
the one you mentioned inequality uh, a moment ago, and that is something that I've been hearing about just in the last week or two. It's been impossible to miss it with the the sort of anti-racist protests that have erupted in your country and then everywhere. I think history will look back and reveal that the pandemic just reinforced the inequalities in most societies between those for whom locking down was quite comfortable and they could work from home or they had salaries that would be paid whether they worked or not, and those who absolutely depend on getting out to work to survive. And the sort of safety nets provided by government are full of holes. And we've had some very interesting insights on that. I mean, there was one from Adriana in the CRO in Salvador in Brazil, where she was telling me how the the government, uh, which sort of doesn't quite fit with my picture of Bolsonaro's federal government, which in many ways has just behaved really, really badly around the pandemic, it seems to me. But they decided that they wanted to get a modest amount of money out into the hands of the, the really poor to help them through this lockdown. So they decided the best way to do it was to produce an app where all you had to do was register your cell phone on the app and you could access this modest amount of money. Brazil has a very bureaucratic approach to accessing public funds and services. Normally, you have to have be registered as a voter and you've got to have various documentation before you can get into the system. Whereas here, they cut through that by offering a, just a cell phone app. And all these people downloaded the app and they said, whoa, we don't know these people. Who are these people? <laughs> they didn't realize that they had this entire layer of Brazilian citizens who are not visible on the system, who've now stepped forward to say, yes, please, I'm, I'm here. I need help. And no, I'm not part of your bureaucratic sort of system. But I, I exist and I'm one of you. And, and it seems to have sparked a really interesting conversation in Brazil about, well, we need to look after these people because they are us and so on. So that seemed to me like one to watch. Oh, for sure. It is fascinating to see how COVID continues to, to lay bare some of these unhealthy underlying conditions, as you and I had discussed previously, particularly in this case around Inequality and racism is a severe form of inequality, which has erupted, you know, here in the U.S. But it's one of many inequalities that exist. And when you talk about racism in terms of, well, in this case, the excessive violence, um, severe violence from the police force, there's also the underlying inequalities, at least going on in the U.S. But I've seen data for other countries as well, where the number of of minority populations in those respective countries are the ones with higher rates of COVID and higher rates, not just of, of the virus, but also in terms of the deaths, which get to lots of other additional underlying issues. So it, it, again, something that's incredibly important and urgent to focus on. But the point that you made about Brazil, I, I have some trepidation about it, I have to confess, because these are, are also opportunities for national governments to seize more control and turn things into a police state. So I, I look at that like, great, now we we found all these People, you really, really you didn't know those people existed. And now you have a mechanism with which to track and report on these people. This is some of the stuff that we saw happening in, in China around COVID and some of the debates that we've had here in the US. Like, how do you monitor and, and track people who have or haven't been exposed? And this harkens right back to, to 9 11 for me after the terrorist attacks in New York. And the United States set up an entirely new federal agency called the Home Department of Homeland Security. 
uh, it allowed the government to spy on people without probable cause the way we had previously thought about it. And now there's this very intense conversation rippling around the world about what's the level of overview and automatic surveillance that is justified in a time like a pandemic. And does that justify trying to protect people individually and collectively, or is it an infringement? And it's this massive, massive rights issue that's happening right now, a little bit underneath the surface, but is beginning to erupt in conversation now. I'm sure. Yes, that's a big issue. It hasn't surfaced in my conversations with the participants. I, I totally agree. In the wrong hands, data is is toxic. On the point you're making about the companies talking more to you recently about the inequality, it, it is amazing to see how vociferous companies in the U.S. have been around these, these issues of, of racism in the U.S. and the collective support that's being shown in lack, I might say, of some clear support from the national government. Companies have been taking an incredibly strong stand on this, which is really heartening to see. It is. I've thought for some weeks now that the role of large corporations going forward after COVID is going to be changed, whether subtly or, or largely, I don't know, but I think they've, so many of them have stepped up and shown that they actually can be compassionate actors in their communities. But um, let's watch this one as the weeks unfold. Hearing what you were saying about Steve Hammer and, and his work on the intergovernmental side and, and some of the discussions we were having there, pivoting away, but with an understanding of the complication of negotiations, focus, priority, companies have been taking a huge, I think, leadership role in not only in how they're addressing COVID, but also how they're addressing some of these other larger issues around inequality that have popped up. Are there any particular examples where you're seeing a company provide some insight and leadership here or whether, whether they're straddling this divide between these two different communities of intergovernmental kind of global issues with corporate issues? This is something that uh, Anne Rosenberg in Copenhagen, who's with SAP, I think of her as a social entrepreneur inside a major corporation who've given her the license to uh, build really interesting bridges across into the global political and innovation space through the UN Global Compact and the SDGs. And she's building very rapidly with her team uh, ways of pulling together large groups of players in the corporate space and in the government and social innovation space to really catch this wave, the positive aspects of this wave as we come out of the worst of the pandemic and settle into sort of rebuilding. Uh, I'm waiting to, to talk with her further about it, but from what I hear so far, it's setting up possibilities of rapid innovation, drawing in experts from different parts of the world, different sectors. And it's quite an intoxicating atmosphere because if you get enough people in a room who actually believe that real shift is possible, and I've got a little piece that might contribute to it, that's rare, and that's very exciting. And she's a sort of beacon for that. She's a, she's a convener of that type of energy. So my calls with her are, are becoming more and more exciting, as I think she's creating something of real exceptional value. Fascinating that a big company like SAP is 
promoting a champion like and do something. I mean, again, another really heartening, heartening sign, but I think it underlines definitely a, a feeling that I have that leadership in the 21st century is partnership. It's through collaboration and inclusiveness that we're going to tackle some of these bigger issues. And I guess similarly, I have another question coming back to the cities. Cities have historically, in my opinion, been kind of the canary in the coal mine in all of this. I mean, they understand firsthand inequalities at the city scale, whether it's through informal settlements or favelas or poor communities through the kind of attempts and sometimes getting it right and getting it wrong of affordable housing. Oftentimes you have lack of good public transportation options for communities, the poor communities. There's historically lack of green space um, and access to some of those types of resources. Uh, So cities really get this stuff. How are they dealing with this? And are you hearing from some of the CROs this issue of inequality as it pertains to COVID and and how are they dealing with it? Well, I'll give you one example, which really struck me, which came from Alex McBride and her work in the city of Oakland. Now, this is going back, I think, two weeks or maybe three, that she said that she had been part of a a setting up of a task team, quite a big task. I mean, I got the impression there were sort of 40 or more people from around the city. Now, all of this online, obviously, who've been given a mandate to uh, by the city to think between now and Christmas, there's quite a tight timetable, but to think how are we going to come out of this in a way that the structural inequalities within the city of Oakland are significantly reduced. And I kept sort of waiting for her to, to say the qualifying phrase that would make me think, okay, so this is kind of a little bit less grand than I think it is. But no, it is grand. It is incredibly ambitious. It's saying, we all know that this is old and unacceptably embedded. So let's do something about it. And we can reach people now. This is something that Craig Kesson said, interestingly, about the availability of key people. You've got them at the end of a, a Zoom call. You just have to make the appointment, boom, there they are. You don't have to book parking and try and arrange catering and all that stuff. So these 40 people have come together. They've met for their first meeting. They're going to meet again shortly after. How it's going to be, I would imagine that the racism protests now will only pour fuel onto that passionate fire to move the dial in Oakland. I find that really exciting when a city says, bring in the experts, bring in the community people. Let's have some people from the city, from business, and let's see if we can make a real dent in this. Heartened to hear, and you mentioned this this window. They're trying to do this with feedback before before the end of the year, before December, which is now in six months. And similarly, I, you know, in talking to various national governments and intergovernmental processes, I'm hearing the same thing. And there's been a tremendous amount of work around the world to try to help understand, articulate, and then back into what is necessary to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and biodiversity loss and the other things we were already talking. And similarly, you mentioned SDGs earlier in this call, which are the Sustainable Development Goals, which are a set of unifying goals, actions, and principles that the United Nations, 195 countries, have agreed to with the aim of achieving the outcomes of the SDGs by the end of 2030. Everything that I just mentioned all has goals that need to come to fruition by the end of 2030. Many are dubbing this the decade of action. And a lot of people who I'm talking with are saying that basically the next six months will have a huge role in determining the successful outcome of many of these 
global and scientific goals that have been set out, largely because we're looking at basically from some of the more recent estimates I've looked at about 40 trillion dollars worth of stimulus that is is going to be invested as a result of COVID. It'll be a once in a century opportunity where most of the countries around the world in relatively the same period of time in the next couple of years will be doing something like that. And this is the opportunity with which to guide it to a successful outcome or not. So there is a lot writing on this, and it's interesting even to see down at the micro level, not just macro level, but even down to the city level, there is that sense of timing, timeliness, and urgency. Urgency was the word that was coming to mind. I think there's this sort of decade of action, and this is the year of biodiversity and so on. We've kind of done that a lot, and we all know that, that nothing, not a great deal happens, but I think the urgency is, you can feel it in the atmosphere now, which I find very hopeful. It is palpable. And what an interesting way to kind of wrap up our midterm kind of review of, of what we've been hearing and learning and to see how the sense of urgency and action is going to play out over the next eight weeks. Indeed. Well, we will be talking again very soon when we pick up on our weekly podcast catch-ups. It'll be interesting to hear how everybody's dealt with a little bit of a break and if there's some extra thoughts well, I can give you a little heads up. It's, there's already fascinating material, so you will not be disappointed. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure uh, we'll all be staying tuned and waiting for the next weekly uh, update. Thanks again, Peter. Thanks, Seth. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Peter and I as we discussed some of the emerging insights from the Resilient Leadership Project thus far. If you want to hear more insights and reflections from our midterm review, please listen to the other four episodes that are part of our special five-part series. You can find these episodes and a lot more around Emerging Insights on our website. Link in the episode notes below. On behalf of The Resilience Shift, this is Seth Schultz. See you soon.